Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 10 The Law of the Medes and the Persians. The response was immediate and terrible. The great hall erupted. If there had been a wall set up around Hermione, then the Hogwarts student body could have brought it down with their shouts alone. In that first moment, as the great hall was lit only by the flickering of the goblet and Hermione's own glow, which even now was spilling out and shining forth to the antechamber, she could see Haywood staring at her, eyes wide and full of loathing. Had the light been any better, Hermione probably still would not have seen anything but that hatred. The anger of the other students roared all around her like a storm appearing from out of clear skies, though most of that was for the sake of national and scholastic pride. Only a few of the students, Haywood among them, might have believed that the Goblet of Fire would have chosen them, if it had not chosen her, and their hate was personal. Her thoughts ran so fast and so confusedly that Hermione wasn't sure whether her protestations were made aloud or just in her head, and the noise was so great that she could hardly hear her thoughts, let alone her voice. Amidst the din, she could make out cries of shock, howls of unfairness, and accusations of cheating— and amidst the angry faces, she saw Longbottom and Malfoy looking bewildered and stunned, respectively. There seemed no end to it, but then the table shook, and the dishes clattered, and the great hall's starry roof returned, its lights erupting in fiery supernovae, the brightness of which forced Hermione first to avert her eyes, and then to close them. "'Be silent,' Brittle said in the shocked pause, and there was silence. "'Miss Granger,' I would appreciate it if you could proceed to the antechamber. Mrs. Bagman and October, friend Mudvarka, I beg your pardon, and ask that you remain seated for the time being. Now, please, Miss Granger. The light dimmed, and her eyes adjusted to what remained. Without a word, Hermione removed herself from the table, and made her way to the antechamber and away from everything and everyone in it. As she left, she could hear hushed murmurs emerge, but these were cut off as soon as she closed the antechamber door behind her as quickly as if that had killed them. The room was empty save for Fleur and Victor, sitting patiently on opposite ends of a couch. "'What is the champion for Hogwarts? Has the ceremony been interrupted?' Victor asked, and Hermione stood there, awkward and silent, searching for the words to explain, while she watched the confusion on Fleur's face drain away to be replaced with horrified understanding. "'You?' "'I've been chosen as a worst champion,' Fleur said. And before Hermione knew it, she had crossed the distance between them. She leaned over, their eyes level. "'We will do something about this,' Fleur said. And she straightened up and repeated it to Madame Maxime and Riddle and Karkaroff as they entered the antechamber together. "'I didn't put my name in the Goblet of Fire, and I'm not—' Riddle held up a hand. "'Silence. I'm not a Hogwarts student,' Hermione said. "'Please hold yourself,' Maxime said quietly. And then, turning to Riddle, she continued, "'But I find that I too am confused. How did this happen?' "'There are many possibilities, but this is a conversation that should be postponed for now. We can investigate it later, but there is a more important matter at hand,' Riddle said. "'What exactly?' she asked. "'Miss Granger, do you want to be part of the tournament?' "'No, I told—' "'Then I propose that we immediately annul her selection,' he said." 
no longer paying any attention to Hermione. Maxime's eyes widened in pleasant surprise, and she nodded. I agree. An empty moment passed, and she turned to Karkaroff. We need unanimous agreement, she said softly, as if Karkaroff were a small child, and not merely to her a small man. I'm not sure why I would do that. Do you think that she is a valid champion? Little questioned. Karkaroff laughed. Of course not. Then what are you waiting for? asked Maxime. Karkaroff smiled. The expression was subdued, but something like triumph seemed to alight in his eyes. With all due respect, I have not forgotten the show that had Master Riddle's students put on last week. If I could have done the same, I would have considered the merits of demoralizing and perhaps even horrifying the other champions. But, his grin broadened, the way I see it, Victor now only has to worry about the champion from Beaubaton. Because Hogwarts is represented by a fourteen-year-old girl, he laughed. Not only a fourteen-year-old, but then Maxime stood straight, all three point five meters of her, and something about Riddle's posture seemed more threatening than a moment before. Kakarov swallowed and smiled again, but he wore it with obvious discomfort now. As I said, I see no reason to annul the drawing. I can make things unpleasant for you murmured Riddle. The mere idea seemed to disconcert Karkaroff, but he got a lock on his features before he replied, "'The Goblet of Fire won't recognize a nullification that is made under duress. Now that you have threatened me, I'm not sure I could possibly comply with your demands, even if you withdraw it. In the end, the possibility will still remain in my head.' "'This is no longer about knowing her selection,' You've made your stance on this very clear, and it is a policy of mine not to beat dead hippogriffs. But there must be discipline, lest misbehavior continue. Karkaroff took a half-step backwards, then narrowed his eyes. People are watching this tournament. The world's eye is on it. You'll never rehabilitate yourself for the ICW if you harm me. My patience is undying. Even when it burns, it lives. Yes, well, Karkaroff said, and Hermione couldn't tell whether it was his disquiet or his impatience that was showing. I have to go. We have yet to speak with the champions, Riddle said. An unnecessary procedure. We can speak to each of them in private. Victor, come, Karkaroff demanded, and then he slunk away out of the antechamber. Though Karkaroff hadn't looked back to confirm that his order was being followed, Victor stood, apologized with an awkward smile, and departed anyway. The room seemed somehow smaller without him, and the situation was not improved when October entered, walking close behind Bagman and Mertvago. Hermione sat on the couch beside Fleur and adjusted herself so that October was visible only in the corner of her eye. "'Why did the dumb Stonanix leave?' inquired Mertvago. "'Headmaster Karkaroff had business to attend to.' I wouldn't dare tell his story for him, Riddle replied. Something flickered and sparked over Mertvago's shoulder like a hinky punk's light. Friend Mertvago, your eye of providence, he said softly. The light went out, and Mertvago flushed. I apologize. It is already forgotten. So what's this about Berbertal having two girls at the quaffle, Riddle? Bagman said. I thought Hogwarts was supposed to get a reach in for it, or are we just hosting the affair? 
the Goblet of Fire selected Miss Granger, and Karkaroff refused to annul the selection with us. So it seems that we are rather stuck with her. Did he now? Bagman shrugged. I wouldn't have seen how it concerned him any. There's plenty of time to turn him around. Matty, pal, maybe you could... We are not on good terms, but Varga replied brusquely. Bagman blinked. Well, all right, but really now, how is she even eligible? She isn't a Hogwarts student, so how the cup... Sorry, the goblet, pick her. It is under the impression that she is a Hogwarts student, Biddle explained. Bagman looked over at Hermione. Why'd you put your name in for Hogwarts, girl? Did you forget what school you came from? I... It hardly matters. And there will be an investigation into the matter, but for now, the champions must be appraised of their duties. Riddle interrupted. Quite right, fair enough. But you can't be serious about having Hermione compete, Fleur said. She does not want to. Fleur looked to Madame Maxime for support, but it was Riddle who spoke next. One of you has left already, so I'll be brief. You know already that there will be three tasks. Your performance on the first two will be rated by a panel of nine judges. Headmaster Karkaroff, Madame Maxime, and myself will form the first triumvirate, and each of us has selected two other judges. We thought it good for the British, French, and Russian governments to have a permanent position, hence the presence of Mr. Bagman and October and friend Varga, and they will form the second triumvirate. The composition of the third will vary from task to task, but there will be international observers at each one, and we have selected some of them as judges. There's a lot riding on this, Bagman interjected. Fame and fortune for the winner, and national pride. Whole world is watching. Well, we'll put a show on for them, even with this Bobertron business, he added, almost muttering the last of it. Riddle continued without any commentary on Bagman. The third task will be winner takes all, but you should not take that as an excuse to slacken your efforts. Each task will feed into the next, such that poor performance on one will impair you on the next. There will be certain difficulties associated with each of the tasks, which you will learn only prior to embarking on them, but in all cases, you are absolutely forbidden from asking for or accepting assistance from any of the staff of any school, or representatives from any government, and if it is determined that you have broken this rule, then you will be barred from participating in the next task, which will not only trigger the forfeiture clause of the tournament's contract, but also put your replacement at a severe disadvantage. When Riddle stopped speaking, it took a moment for anyone to realize that he was actually done. "'If that's all I wait for, I've got a long weekend ahead of me, so I'll be going,' Bagman said. And he made himself scarce, saying something as he went about Karkaroff and a bottle of Ogden's. Mertvago followed after him, and October remained behind just long enough to wish good luck and fair fortune for both of you before he left as well. When Hermione began to stand up, Riddle raised a hand. "'Miss Granger, I would like to have a word.' "'You may stay as well, Madame Maxime. We won't be long,' he added, when Hermione and Fleur glanced up at the headmistress. Madame Maxime nodded, and Fleur looked back once at Hermione, then left. "'What I have to say is this. We are in an extraordinarily unusual situation, but you should not think that I will extend to you the least bit of leniency or support. You are not a student of Hogwarts, and you are not our champion. You may think I would like to avoid the sting of your failure, but I trust that history will remember that you were taught at Bobertron. What if I win? thought Hermione, but it was too ridiculous a thought for her to be in danger of saying it aloud. I understand, sir. After Riddle left, Madame Maxime leaned down to close some of the distance between herself and Hermione. It wouldn't be good for both of us to stay here while the others are leaving. Please meet with me when I return to the carriage. 
Hermione nodded, then followed her out into the great hall, where the reception was little better than the student's initial response to the goblet's choice. The Beaubaton delegation rose as one body as Hermione approached, and Fleur stuck close to her as they departed amid the boos and hisses from the Hogwarts students. "'Are you all right?' Fleur asked, so softly that Hermione could scarcely hear her. "'I'm fine, Fleur,' she said, and she mostly believed it. "'I'm going to talk with Madame Maxime. We'll get it figured out,' Hermione added. But Fleur sat with her anyway in the carriage's salon, the two of them saying nothing much at all, until Madame Maxime passed through on the way to her study. "'Do you want me to wait outside for you?' Fleur asked as Hermione rose to follow the headmistress. "'Now we'll get this worked out. You should get started on celebrating. You're still our champion, no matter what.' Hermione gave Fleur the best smile she could muster, then went on her way. The carriage was bigger on the inside, but in the headmistress's study things were just bigger. Madame Maxime was a tall woman— and she was most comfortable with books that weren't smaller than her hand, with a chair tall enough to leave room for her legs, with a desk that didn't require her to hunch over. Hermione had never visited the study before, but she had once been called to the headmistress's office, and now, as then, she felt just a little bit like Alice in Wonderland. Best to get straight to the point, and not waste Madame Maxime's time, Hermione decided. "'I want to withdraw from the tournament,' she said. "'You cannot,' Maxime said." As a master widow told you, there was a contract in effect. That wasn't how Hermione had expected the conversation to go. But I didn't... I didn't sign my name. How can I be the champion? I'm not even... Not even a Hogwarts student, Hermione wanted to say. But how much of that was true? How much did it matter? How can I be bound to a contract that I didn't sign? I've never heard of such a thing. Maxime shook her head. The contract only relates to you indirectly. It was not you, but I, and that master's widow in Karkaroff, who signed the contract, and who are bound by it. What was the contract? Maxine pursed her lips. They got many terms, most of them dating to a time when the relationship between our schools was most strained. What is relevant to us now is that if any student who is selected as the school's champion subsequently chooses to withdraw from the tournament, or is thrown out of the tournament for ill behavior, and the relevant administrator, myself in that case, must expel that student. To enforce this, we have each of us voluntarily bound ourselves and wedded this contract to the enchantments of our respective schools. If I refuse to do this, if I violate the contract, then Beaubaton will no longer recognize me as its headmistress. It may not even be possible for me to enter as a visitor. There was once a headmistress of Darmstrang who lost her position in this way and died when she returned to attend the graduation of her great-grandson. But Beto is not Darmstrang. But the enchantments of each of our schools are complex and sometimes work in unforeseen ways, so I cannot count out the possibility that I too might be in danger. You could never come back. Who would take over? Hermione added in a mutter, mostly to herself. Maxine was not young, but neither was she old. And if there was any kind of succession plan, as there surely had to be, just in case of an accident, then none of the students knew of it. In the event of such an absence, it is permitted for the king to select my successor, but that is not important, Maxime continued. You can go to nearly any school in the world if you wish it. I will write a letter of recommendation to make sure it happens, as will every member of the faculty, and there will be no favor owed that I will not ask for and no debt I will not incur to make sure that you receive the education that you deserve. 
There are three schools of magic that teach in French, and more that teach in English. There is a school in Australia, and a dozen in the Americas, and I don't understand. Hermione, Maxime said, her voice both fierce and kind. Bobetto is not your home. You have parents and a sister who love you. And your friends will remain your friends no matter how far away they may be, and you are nearly half done with your education. There is no reason that you must stay here. If you would be in danger out there, if you are to be protected, then I might advise you to stay, but the danger is here. Maxime wasn't quite right. It wasn't clear how far October's reach extended, or what he might do to keep Hermione here, or even to retaliate. Or was that the point? Did October want to remove Maxime for some reason Hermione couldn't puzzle out? Hermione looked down and told herself it was just that her neck hurt from craning up. The first task isn't until November. Can I have time to think about this? she asked. Take all the time you'll need. Hermione spoke with Fleur briefly, just long enough to let Fleur know there was a solution and she ought to stop worrying, but without any elaboration on the details of that solution, then went to her bedroom. She cast a silencing charm on her pillow, cast another on her door, and locked it to be safe, then let herself crumple into her bed and cry into the pillow. What had she done that now she had to lose everything that was important to her? Thinking through it logically, Hermione knew that she shouldn't be complaining. She had more options than many others might have in her situation. Some of the American schools were known to her for their bigotry, and another of them for having several professors who didn't even believe that what they did was magic— but she was fluent in French, and the curriculum at Le Nettois was all right, even if it couldn't hold a candle to Bobaton. But it was hard to imagine even going to another school, away from Fleur and the rest of her friends. Forget about remembering how to make friends who hadn't first been Fleur's friends. Hermione wasn't sure she'd ever learned how to do that in the first place. Besides, friends weren't a fungible resource. Hermione could make a hundred friends, and none of them would mean as much to her as Fleur did. Thinking of Fleur made the question harder in other ways, too— Hermione knew, of course, that Fleur would advise her to do what she had to do and stay safe, but when she asked Fleur to do the same, she had been rebuffed. Leaving wouldn't just be leaving, it would be running away, and for as long as she lived, no matter how long she lived, she'd be standing small in Fleur's esteem, a little girl who would never be her equal. The little glass beetle which Madame Maxime gave her last week couldn't possibly impart any advice, but she unpinned it from her lapel and examined it anyway— looking into its brilliant blue glass as if she could scry the answer if only she tried hard enough. It was supposed to keep her safe, but didn't she have a responsibility to everyone else, too? France had protected her, but Baton had taught her, and Fleur had saved her, and that had to have occurred some kind of debt. If October wanted her here, as he surely did, then he might punish Baton if she left. The beetle said nothing. Sighing, Hermione pulled herself from the bed and set the beetle down on her desk— then retrieved a mirror to check her face. Though she had never been one for makeup, necessity had forced her to pay attention to a few details about her appearance, and, with water and a conjured handkerchief, she pressed her eyes until they no longer looked like she'd had a fit. Nobody was going to come in, and Hermione wasn't about to go out, but even rusty habits died hard when they were old enough. Sighing, Hermione pulled herself from the bed and set the beetle down on her desk, then tried to busy herself. Her first resort was homework— but she couldn't keep her mind on it long enough to read two lines of Circe's poetry, let alone interpret them from Greek. Personal projects were no better. Reading about Occlumency only reminded her of how little progress she had made on her own, and Tom Riddle, British Kinkinatus, made her want to scream. 
She tried to organize her notes, but no more than five minutes had gone by before Hermione realized that she had transcribed notes for a correspondence class to her master scroll for a Hogwarts class. It might help to move around, she decided, and there were a few books she could drop off at the Hogwarts library and maybe even enough time before it closed to find more to borrow. In principle, a book that could distract her had to exist, and with a couple of hours to look, she could probably find it. Hermione mentally flinched from the thought of leaving the room, but it was just a phantom reaction. A long time had gone by since she needed to think of her room as a refuge, and anyway, Hermione wasn't about to let a bunch of ten-year-old girls beat her by controlling her actions all the way from the past. With one more glance at the mirror to make sure she looked presentable, Hermione exited her room. She could hear Fleur down the hall, and by the sound of it, half the carriage was probably with her in celebration, so Hermione stepped softly in the other direction. She put on a good face for Lena when they bumped into each other, and Hermione used the impending due date of her books as an excuse to remove herself promptly before Lena could say a word, and then she was home free. Home. That was going to be a problem if Hermione had to do the responsible thing and leave Beaubaton, but it was a solvable one. Hermione couldn't ask her parents to uproot their lives a second time, or to separate Miranda from the only home she'd ever known— but maybe she could let them stay in France and take an international flight to get to and from school. She wouldn't even have to tell them. They knew so little about what was going on already. In all likelihood, nobody would even write them a letter about the situation so long as Hermione promised to explain things. Perhaps she could even arrange for a long-distance port key and not have to worry about getting money for a round-trip ticket over each summer. It would at least be worthwhile to ask Madame Maxime. But if she was going to be responsible, Hermione decided as she walked through the halls of Hogwarts, then she ought to tell the headmistress about October, just in case that required Madame Maxime to change her plans. Or would telling her incite an even worse response from October? He had, apparently, seen fit to dangle Hermione's friends as a carrot, and it was possible he might dangle them as a stick, too, and make reprisals against them as well as her. Perhaps, and maybe, could be dirty words sometimes— they could inspire doubt when conviction was necessary, and there was no end to the alternatives that a healthy, creative mind could spin up. But if she hadn't been absorbed in her thoughts, perhaps she would have heard something in time, perhaps she would have guessed, perhaps she would have seen an opportunity before it was too late. Perhaps, perhaps, but that is not what happened. This is. Mid-step, Hermione froze, and, off balance, toppled to the floor. She fell face first without the ability to shift herself or throw out her arms. Her head smacked the hard stone floor, and the books dug painfully into her chest. Had she broken her nose? Behind her she could hear footsteps, hands gripped her, flipped her around to her back, and she saw Haywood's face, expressionless but for a furious glint in her eyes. Hermione tried to speak, but she still couldn't move. She recalled how adept Haywood had been at silent casting during the opening duel— and then Haywood pointed with her wand and cast again. Hermione's right arm crumpled like a couple of dry twigs beneath someone's boot. If she could have screamed, if she could have cried out, but she still couldn't move, a prisoner in her body. She almost blacked out from the pain, but that too seemed denied to her, so Hermione was left to hang in the agony while Haywood stared down at her. Something shifted at the edge of her vision, and Hermione felt her leg snap back on itself at the knee. Haywood murmured an incantation, finally moving beyond what spells she could cast silently, and Hermione's body, still immobilized, nevertheless tried to writhe in response. Then Haywood moved her wand in small circles over Hermione's body, 
and slowly the pain subsided, and her arm and leg felt normal again. Haywood sat beside Hermione, leaning back on one arm and smiling as though they were two friends sitting on the grass and talking pleasantries. When I took dueling, Professor Flitmick dedicated the old first term to the functional charms. Every first he knows that the severing charm can slit a throat, I suppose. But you can burn someone with the scouring charm or engorge them till they pop. What I've thought a lot about is how even a healing spell can be used to hurt. But I haven't had the opportunity to put it in practice until now. Thanks for that, I guess. The first joint of Hermione's little finger bent backwards till it cracked. Then her finger bent back again at the next, inexorably rolling itself up like a little scroll. As her fingers broke themselves one by one again and again, Haywood continued to speak. I don't know what you intended to gain from this, but it's going to stop. I'm not about to let you humiliate our school. The fingers on Hermione's other hand began to snap. You have no idea how hard I've worked for this. Hermione would have screamed had her mouth obeyed her. She would have cried, but the tears only collected in pools on her eyes. I want you to withdraw, Granger. I don't care what it'll cost you, and neither should you. Think about what I've done. In five minutes, and imagine what'll happen if I pulled you aside for an hour or two. There's so much to be done with just the bones. Haywood stood and loomed over her. Don't bother talking to anybody about this. No one will believe you anyway. And if you make me repeat this session, I might just forget to heal you. Haywood's wand made circles over Hermione again and then the pain went away as Haywood did. Agony to aches to painlessness as the sound of her footsteps receded into silence. Hermione knew her paralysis was fading when she was able to cry. For a long time she had the energy to do nothing else, and then, haltingly, she forced herself just a little off the floor, enough to put her back to the wall. She was still sobbing when Fleur found her, in an instant, Hermione found herself wrapped up in Fleur's embrace. She gasped, startled, then leaned into it, hiding her face. Tell me what happened. Hermione shook her head. She couldn't. She couldn't. But Fleur's patience was stronger than Hermione's reluctance to speak. Eventually, once she was able to breathe properly, she wiped her eyes and looked up. Fleur, how did you know? You were gone a very long time, so I went looking for you. Madame Maxime had made a brief appearance in that time, so you could not be with her, and you were not in your room, so I asked around, and Lino said you had gone to return books to the library. I, I did. I dropped them, Hermione realized aloud. Had they been damaged? She shifted in place, moving to retrieve the books that lay scattered on the floor, but Fleur shook her head. Forget them. They are not important right now. What happened to you? Haywood had threatened her with so much. 
Four years ago, that might have been enough to dissuade her from ever talking, along with Haywood's smug certainty that it couldn't possibly help. But now Hermione could, and did, look at Fleur, sitting beside her on the cold floor, and she knew that what Haywood had said was at least half a lie. Maybe Haywood would try to hurt her again, but Hermione would be believed, at least, not by everyone, perhaps even not by many people, but there was only one person in this castle who really mattered. I was attacked. Haywood tortured me, she said. Fleur's rosewood wand was in her hand at that very moment, and she looked ready to launch away in pursuit, held back only by the fact that Hermione was here, and that going off would mean leaving Hermione behind. Instead, she looked Hermione up and down, as if looking for signs of injury. Well, are you hurt? I'm not hurt. She... Hermione swallowed thickly. She healed me, too. I'm fine, physically speaking. When she rose to retrieve her books, however, her left leg felt oddly stiff, and when she put her weight on it in the course of standing, she staggered. Fleur wrapped an arm around her waist, and, without needing to be told, Hermione leaned against her. "'I'm going to take you to the hospital wing. It's on the first floor.' "'The books,' Hermione began to say, but even as she spoke, Fleur levitated them into a conjured bag and slung them over her other shoulder. Getting to the hospital wing proved a minor ordeal in its own right, in part because of Hermione's limp, and in part because Fleur had misremembered the route. Madame Pomfrey wasn't there when they arrived, but a gaunt vampire in a white and lime uniform and a scarlet Gryffindor tie was on duty, sitting in a chair beside the headmaster's dog and reading softly from a well-worn copy of Mrs. Hattie's traditional poems. Fleur gave him a very sparse account of what had occurred, that Hermione had been hurt and was suffering lingering damage after a botched healing, and that he was apprenticed then set Hermione up in bed. On the opposite bed was the room's only other occupant, a sheet-covered bundle whose only sign of life was a deep snore. "'Give me a moment to see what I'm working with here,' the vampire said quietly. Streams of soft, golden light flowed out from his wand, wrapping themselves around Hermione's leg and hand. In patches and strips, the light darkened into a color like burnt amber, and he frowned and twitched a moonstone ring on his finger. "'Are you currently feeling any pain?' "'Not really. It's more uncomfortable than anything. It feels weak. "'Madame Pomfrey will be here in a few minutes. "'I could try to heal your leg, but if your friend already tried that, "'it's going to be a bit more complicated. "'I think both of us would prefer that she handled it if there's no rush.' "'When Pomfrey arrived, it turned out the complications didn't entail a lengthier or even painful process, "'but it did mean that she wanted to keep Hermione in the hospital wing overnight "'to make sure that there were no after-effects.' "'Our headmistress needs to know what happened to her,' Fleur said. "'Then go and tell her,' said the hero's apprentice, more than a little snippily. "'I'm not leaving her,' Fleur said. A brief smile passed across Pomfrey's face, and she sent her student to wake up Madame Maxime. It was only after he left that Hermione recognized him as Chrisley Rackharrow, the very good student Longbottom had mentioned prior to the opening duel. With that thought came the additional realization that she was probably lying across from Peregrine Derrick, who was still due to stay in the hospital wing for another week, if Vicente's estimate was correct. But Hermione didn't dwell on it for long. The hour was late, and Hermione had been through at least two ordeals in one night. She only realized she was falling asleep in retrospect when she awoke later. It was still well before morning, to find that Fleur was sitting in a chair beside the bed, head propped against the wall and fingers clutched around her wand. Rackharrow was still there, too, sitting cross-legged on a free bed and reading Mrs. Hattie again, and he noticed Hermione immediately. "'I'm sorry for being a little terse earlier,' 
he said. "'I thought your friend was responsible, actually, since why else would she cover up damage like that and try to pass it off as an accident? But, well, your headmistress came by anyway and straightened me out pretty quickly about it, scared Padfoot away and nearly woke up Derek. We thought it would be better to let you sleep, though. She'll be back in the morning.' Rakira smiled, keeping his mouth closed as he did so. Hermione glanced at Fleur, somehow the picture of a sentry despite her unconscious condition, then rolled over on her right side and let herself drift off again. Morning brought with it an unwelcome surprise when, at the same time that Madame Maxime arrived, so too did Riddle and Haywood, and following close behind was the headmaster's great black dog. "'It has come to my attention that there may have been an altercation between two of our students, or two of mine, as the case may be.' Madame Maxime looked as though she were about to object to that, but Fleur rose sharply from her chair and pointed aggressively at Haywood. "'She cursed Hermione!' Riddle's mask turns to face Haywood. "'Is this true?' he asked. Hermione resisted the urge to groan, even internally. She knew it was going to come next, how Haywood would deny it all, and how Riddle would believe his favorite student, but at least Hermione wouldn't be alone. "'She cannot lie to me!' Riddle whispered. The words came out like a soft hiss. "'Granger can't possibly be our champion!' Haywood said. She isn't one of us. She didn't try. She didn't have the will. She doesn't deserve it. Hermione heard an unexpected noise, something like a gas leak, then realized that Riddle had sighed. You attacked a visitor from another school, and you did so. Do not deny it in order to intimidate her for your own glory, so that you might rise in my esteem. You have no idea what this might have cost us. Haywood stared back, her eyes wide, gaze flickering between Riddle and Hermione in disbelief. Her mouth opened and closed several times, but there was only the sound of her breathing, quick and growing quicker. You have detention with Mr. Sable for the rest of the weekend, effective immediately, Riddle said. Someone will be along to retrieve you on Monday morning. Haywood dropped to her knees. Her eyes were wet now, fit to burst with tears, and she clutched the hem of his robes in one trembling hand as she looked up to his white mask. Professor Riddle, I beg you, please— I have spoken, the headmaster said. If I must speak again, then it will be to expel you from my sight forever. The rebuke could have been a physical blow, the way that Haywood shuddered against it, and she moved almost as if she had been thrown, legs and hands and feet spilling over each other as she withdrew, trying to stand at the same time she was trying to leave the room. On the opposite side of the room from Hermione, Derek groaned and shifted in his bed. Riddle tapped Derek's head with the end of a white wand, and he settled back down. Full of apprehension, but courageous and defiant as well, Hermione gathered her courage and asked, Headmaster, who is... Mr. Sable, he is our Dementor for this year. Your Dementor? Hermione said dumbly, the words struggling to get out her throat sick and thick. You sent her to a Dementor? The gears of her brain twisted, teeth locking together in the memory of the opening feast, when the whole student body seemed to shiver at the mention of Mr. Sable and his predecessor, Mr. Soot. She almost didn't catch what Riddle said next. "'Of course you don't have anything to worry about,' 
since you aren't a Hogwarts student. The issue of interscholastic discipline was one of the very first things we settled when the talks began last year, he said, as if that made anything better that she at least wouldn't be. You knew? Flesh said. And Hermione turns to her, wondering how Fleur could think she had figured it out already, when she saw who Fleur was looking at, with an expression that was equal parts horror and anger. I knew? Madame Maxime confirmed. How could you just please, Fleur, hold off for a minute, Hermione said, and she refocused her attention on Riddle. But Dementors are dangerous, how could you? Riddle sighed again. Dementors are intelligent beings, he said slowly as if he were explaining something simple to a child who is simpler yet. Hungry, yes, but who is alive and does not hunger? They can restrain themselves, which is the important thing, the hallmark of a civilized creature, or at least of one that can be made civil. But this is a school. This is a school. The first years are just learning to use a wand. How many of the advanced students can cast up a tremulous charm? You can't just— I can, and I do. Riddle sounded more amused than frustrated. Now I do recognize the value of a little prudence, and our friend is never put in a position where his restraint will be put to the test, but there is still so much good that a Dementor can do, locked in a room with some reading material and other things to pass the time. Reading material? I can see now that your empathy does not extend to all beings, but surely you can at least see how someone might enjoy a good book. Britain's Dementors are never alone until they come to Hogwarts. They are always together in Azkaban never far from each other's songs, and so Mr. Sable not only risks boredom but suffers from loneliness. Books, trinkets, and a little company from time to time are the least I can do for our cloaked dignitary. Perhaps you might alleviate his loneliness as well sometime. Riddle, Maxim said in morning tones. He laughed softly. Your students are safe from detention, but permission slips are available upon request. Madame Maxime frowned, but said nothing more to Riddle. There is already an emergency pocket de France. We can recant to take you to your parents' house if you want, and I can escort you off the grounds beyond the school's empty pocket jinx for you to use it. We will also send your personal effects by express, and you will have them when you wake up in the morning. Thank you, but there's something I have to settle first. Hermione turns to Riddle. What will happen when I withdraw? Many things. You will have to be specific, or we will be talking here until they have all happened. What will happen to Hogwarts in the tournament? You said that you could get another champion if my selection were annulled, but what would happen if I forfeited? The Goblet of Fire would select another champion to represent our school. Is it going to be Hayward? Only the Goblet of Fire can say, and not until the flames rise. What would happen to her entry? Would she still be eligible? Yes. Even though she... Despite what she did, what she's done... Are you trying to punish my student further, Miss Granger? I can assure you that she is already more sorry than you know, Riddle said. So softly it was almost a murmur. Besides, if the Goblet of Fire cares about student misbehavior outside the tournament, I have not been told. Hermione thought as much, but with that confirmation, her dilemma wasn't much of one at all. She looked at Fleur... At Riddle's porcelain mask, then finally fixed her gaze on Madame Maxime. I won't be withdrawing. Madame Maxime sighed and shook her head, and Fleur swore. Riddle clapped his hands twice in perfunctory and perhaps mocking applause. 
This has been exciting, but if your mind is made up, then I have duties to attend to, he said. And he departed from the room. Fleur squeezed her hand. You can't remind me the tournament is dangerous, and— If you want my friend, I think you would still care about that, Hermione said. But because you're my friend, you have to care about something else, too. If I got hurt, you wouldn't be able to live with yourself. I know that, but you told me that some things are more important than that, and this is one of them. I can't do much for you, but I can do this one thing. I can protect you from Haywood. You still have time. The first task is not until November, Madame Maxime said. If I change my mind, I'll let you know. If you don't mind, can I talk with Fleur in private? Of course, Madame Maxime said. And then there were two, not counting the dog. There were things which Hermione couldn't share, but there was so much which she had to. Perhaps those were even the same thing. At the very least, Hermione couldn't hide everything. Slowly, she turns to Fleur, who looked at her with reassuring firmness. We need to talk, Hermione said. She wasn't sure if she could tell Fleur everything, but she could at least make a start at it. Absolutely, Fleur said. She gave Hermione's shoulder a reassuring squeeze, and with that, Hermione felt like she could do anything. But before Hermione could say or do anything further, the door opened again. Victor walked through, and Dimitri came after him, nearly spilling over his own feet like a human avalanche. Hello, and Dmitry Polyakov, he said, extending his hands to Fleur, but he was too far away, and when he leaned further he unbalanced himself, tripped over Padfoot, and completely fell to the ground. he muttered. Victor paid a passing glance to Dmitry, then stepped over his body and looked at Hermione. Nothing happened except that he looked at her, and she looked back at him, and he continued to look at her, till Dmitry raised a hand from the floor and said in muffled, aggravated tones, Victor Brastora Hindenden Storatosk. Da, da. Victor closed his eyes and took a breath. Hermione, we need to talk. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Dayswitch under a Creative Commons license with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at sangabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, Thank you for listening.